Welcome to Unraveling the Middle East. How do we know what happened in the past? Well, the answer is history, right? It's gotta be. Otherwise, what the heck are we doing here? Well, what I realized from yesterday's conversation with my guest, Dr. Kanari Taprizi, is that history, this thing that I spend so much time on, is really complex. And I'm not talking about the complicated facts and the convoluted chronicles of history. Rather, I'm referring to the study of history itself. Why do we study history? Why are we so interested in it? In today's episode, Dr. Ramari Tabrizi will explain why history has become so important in our modern era of nation-states. Why newly formed nations, or those nations in crisis, desperately attempt to reclaim their histories, to reclaim their real or imagined glorious past, and why repressive regimes censor history. In our country, we're actively revisiting our own history, re-examining facts and reinterpreting their meanings, even about basic stuff. For example, in my History Behind News podcast, a scholar of colonial American history explained the real history of Thanksgiving, a day that many Native Americans observe as a national day of mourning a gathering of Indians and pilgrims in 1621 that didn't happen as we learn it did back in grade school, and a feast that was never repeated. What does this have to do with the Middle East, you may ask? The calamity of colonialism, the disruption that it brought to the Middle East, has made reclaiming history vital to the region, including to its governments that seek to legitimize their rule. At the same time, despite the repressions of these states, or perhaps in spite of it, vibrant intellectual communities have flourished in the Middle East. In America, far-left Democrats and far-right Republicans have vastly different views of our history. They reclaim this history to legitimize their political platforms to win elections. Well, maybe we Americans can learn from Middle Easterners to turn off the History Channel, to get off our social media, and to have intellectual conversations and communities. God forbid, right? Of course, you know, history is perhaps one of the most contested areas of, of uh, uh, academic uh, inquiry. And, uh, because it's, and all this conversation we've been having, it tells you how important history is. Yeah. Because, uh, because it really defines the uh, constitutive elements of a nation. Italy was unified in 1864 from 61 to 64. Okay. And, uh, and uh, Garibaldi, who was one of the sort of uh, revolutionaries at the time, yeah. uh, said that uh, we have created Italy because he unified the entire... Now time has come to create Italians. Huh. Think about how bizarre this statement is. Yeah. This is about reclaiming the past in a sanitized version. And uh, of course, you know, uh, 
the Shah of Iran wanted to reclaim that past and, and create a sense of continuity, civilizational continuity for the past glories of, of the Persian Empire. And, and why is he doing that? Some of it is for consumption, uh, domestic consumption. Yeah. Some of it is to show the uh, great powers of the world that you can't mess with us, you know. For him and many others, you could not and should not separate Western democracies from their colonial impulse. Colonial oh. impulse is a part and parcel of Western democracies. And without colonialism, they could not sustain their democratic systems inside their own countries. Unraveling the Middle East is a special series production of the History Behind News program where 125 scholars and counting explain the histories behind our current events. And I'm Adele Ali, your host. In the four seasons of the History Behind News podcast, I've had the pleasure of speaking with many prominent scholars about Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Arabia, and Iran and its Persian past. But you know what? We've only scratched the surface here. So join me and my guest scholars in this fascinating journey into the history, myths, and mysteries of the Middle East. My guest for this episode is Dr. Behruz Qamari Tabrizi of Princeton University. He's a professor and chair of Near Eastern Studies. He's the director of Sharman and Bijan Musavar Rahmani Center for Iran and Persian Gulf Studies. He has written many books, including Islam and Dissent in Post-Revolutionary Iran. He has co-edited a special issue of Radical History Review and has written extensively on the topics of social theory and Islamist political thought in different journals and book chapters. Currently, he's working on a project on mystical modernity, a comparative study of philosophy of history and political theory of Walter Benjamin and Ali Shariati. To learn more about Dr. Ramari Tabrizi, you can visit his academic homepage, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Ramari Tabrizi and I unravel the Middle East. Dr. Ramari Tabrizi, after everything we talked about yesterday, uh, which was fascinating, I want to ask you a question that's rather broad. How is history treated in the Middle East? Uh, by history, you mean the discipline of history or, or uh, like... Uh, no, let me explain uh, it this or, way, if I may, please. So, or the way people relate to their own history. No, the way they relate to their own history. In America, we are more, for example, forward-looking. At least we were. Perhaps that's changed a little bit. But mm -hmm. uh, in many countries, perhaps in the Middle East, they many a times... And for different reasons throughout their history, stresses mm -hmm. uh, of, of of society, uh, they become wistful for their mm -hmm. uh, real and mythological glories, like the Persians, yeah. the Ottomans, the Fatimids, the Abbasid. That's mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. I meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
the you know the problem with the it's it's true I think for the entire uh, colonized world and it's particularly true for the Middle East that uh, that colonialism disrupted people's relationship with their own history. Colonialism is such a significant watershed moment for uh, people of the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, in East Asia, in South Asia. But here in the Middle East, exactly because of what you said, that uh, that, that uh, Islam played such a significant role in all the way from like 9th century to 14th century in terms of scientific discoveries, in terms of philosophical discourses, in terms of literature, in terms of, I mean, this idea of like the Islamic Renaissance mm-hmm. that happens in like 11th, 12th centuries. Um, and then in 17th, 18th century, there is this kind of rupture in this history that uh, that the reason you see that people constantly talk about the past in those terms that, you know, we want to revive, that this is sort of a move towards reclaiming that history. Yeah. But they want to reclaim that history because of the disruption that colonialism uh, created, this rupture uh, uh, that colonialism created in their own history. So um, I think that makes sense if you if you live in those regions and yeah. to say that, I mean, you, you see the similar thing in Africa, you know, like now we have Afro-pessimism and, and, um, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, indigenous people, Native Americans, for example, you know, any people around the world that you look at, that their histories were disrupted and interrupted by external forces, they desire to reclaim that history before that disruption. Interesting. And, uh, and uh, so it, it doesn't have anything to do because a lot of people attribute that to uh, Islam as a backward-looking religion. And they say that, oh, because Islam is backward-looking, people constantly are thinking about their past. Um, But it really doesn't have anything to do with Islam because, again, Islam was very, very forward-looking. And I know, I mean, all religions can be backward-looking or forward-looking. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that, that you know, uh, there's anything distinct about Islam, you know, here. Um, but the, the backward-looking, that sort of claiming or reclaiming the past is something that is coming from, from that colonial um, um, disruption. Without that, we really can't understand why, uh, I mean, if you look at current politics, if you look at the current war in, in Palestine, if you look at, you know, the role of the U.S. 
in the Middle East, if you look at all these things, they all go back to this kind of uh, um, constitutive element of collective historical memory of uh, people in the Middle East, that, uh, that there was a major, major break. There was a uh, um, penetration that basically pushed them off the rail. And, uh, and now they want to sort of push back that train. <laughs> Get on the road uh, Back again. On, the, on, on, on track. Right, yeah. and and in order to do that, there is violence. <laughs> there, there, there are wars. There are you know reclaiming of the past, and and all those things. So I think that the uh, um, uh, the mistake always is that to to sort of uh, search for that kind of reclaiming of the past in the essence of Islam. There is nothing in the essence of Islam to. Um, suggest that. When you say there's nothing in the essence of Islam, it makes me think of other um, examples of trying to reclaim the past. Uh, um, something that you and I have in common, the Shah of Iran, he tried to reclaim the glory, real or, or supposed, you know, imagine mm -hmm. glories of the Persian past. So that wasn't really Islamic, I suppose, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you know, that that's... Uh, uh, I mean, the, the in any kind of claiming of the past, I mean, look at this country. You know, <laughs> everyone make America great again. No, I mean, absolutely. Isn't that isn't that the thing? You know, they're trying to reclaim the past. Um, and uh, listen to the Republican presidential candidate who can't say slavery. You know, this is this is <laughs> yeah. this is about reclaiming the past in a sanitized version. You know, and. Um, and uh, of course, you know, uh, the Shah of Iran wanted to reclaim that past and, and create a sense of continuity, civilizational continuity for the past glories of, of the Persian Empire. <clears throat> and, and why is he doing that? Some of it is for consumption, uh, domestic consumption. Yeah. Some of it is to show the uh, great powers of the world that you can't mess with us, you know. <laughs> Although you know he was an ally of the U.S., but at the same time he wanted to sort of say and demonstrate that uh, we are not any kind of puppet government in the world. We inherited a great civilization, and and you need to come to terms with how great we are. And this is our glorious past. You know? Now we. we for the past few minutes, you and I have been talking about greatness and reclaiming real and imagined glories of the past. I get that. But here's something else. Um, I, I just know one example, so um, mm. uh, I'll share that with you. There's also this, in the Middle East, this look at historical victimhood. And I go back mm -hmm. again to the example that I know well from Iran, and Shiite Muslims uh, observe every year uh, the martyrdom of uh, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, Hussein. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And you have two days that is called Ashura Taswa. It's on a lunar calendar and it happens mm -hmm. a different day every year. And there's, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of mourning, even though he died 1400 years ago. 
that is not looking back at history for its glory, is it? Mm -hmm. No, this is uh, looking back. Uh, uh, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that example up because uh, I want to take a little detour to Shariati from there mm -hmm. that the, uh, to to make the uh, distinction very clear via this example that you brought up. Oh, if if you if you look at Ashura. Uh, which is sort of commemoration, as you said, of martyrdom of Imam Hussein, and um, and for uh, centuries, um, in one way or another, this was a ritual that people go and and reenact the martyrdom of uh, Imam Hussein in yeah. Karbala, which in, is in uh, Iraq, not in Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah in sixteen eighty six eighty end of seventh century. And uh, it was a ritual. People do this, and 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 after a day or so, they all go home, and and you know they said, okay, we we did our share. So here comes Shariati and says that you know, when you look at Ashura and Karbala, the lesson we learn is not victimhood. The lesson we learn is not to go and participate in some form of performance. Of mourning, where you beat yourself and and you cry beat yourself and, and then you know cry and and you know uh, put mud on your head and exactly you know, you walk around thirsty and all that. And Shariati says that uh, it's very beautiful actually the, the way he uh, talks about it. He said that you know and in in the early revolution there are all these banners that says uh, <clears throat> uh, every day is Ashura. Every place is Karbala. In the 1979 revolution. 79, right. Okay. That was Shariati's message. Right? Because Karbala and Ashura. By the way, Karbala is where he died. He was killed. He died, yeah. Okay, that's, was, that's, that's a location. He, he was, okay. Yeah, he was killed in Karbala. And the day is Ashura, the 10th okay. day of uh, month of Muharram. Uh, and uh, Shariati says that, you know, he's doing a, an allegorical reading of this and say that uh, <clears throat> every day is Ashura. Ashura did not happen 1400 years ago. Ashura happened yesterday because the secret police arrested those revolutionaries and those revolutionaries are the manifestation of Imam Hussein in our time today. So one, if I, if I may clarify or seek mm. clarification, by secret police, he's talking about the Shahs. The Shahs. The Shahs, police, yeah. Savak. And right. then the second point that I wanted to make sure I'm so all the revolution, Yeah, all the revolutionaries are Imam Hussein. Are Imam Hussein. So in a way, yeah. he re revolutionized. revolutionized. The Shiite religion, of course, because and and that's what he says. That he said that you know, you turn and, and that he goes to the clergy, to the clergy, and says that you turn the most important revolutionary moment in Shi'i history into an an occasion of mourning and <laughs> and and crying and passivity. You need to revolutionize that moment. You need to say that this is symbolically 
the struggle <clears throat> of uh, the oppressed against the oppressor. And that is true for all history. You know, oh, and wow. uh, you know, That's uh, really you know, uh, he, he was he was trained in a Marxist uh, um, tradition, and uh, you know the uh, if you remember the uh, you don't have to remember this, but because I teach these things, I have to remember <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that uh, the greatest line in the Marxist Communist Manifesto is that all history is the history of class struggle. Yeah, all yeah, history yeah. is the history of class struggle. This is Ali Shariati saying that every day is Ashura, every, every place is Kerma. This because this is the struggle of the oppressed against oppressor. Right. That is so, fascinating. Um, so this is yeah. What you know? I, I want to bring some familiarity. About, uh, uh, along what we're talking about, both to myself and also to our audience, and I'll use this example. You tell me mm -hmm. if if this makes sense. You know, let's let's just move away from the Middle East for a moment. Even in 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 Western uh, countries, you know, after World War II, you see more and more the, the French talk about the grandeur of of the French Empire and and the glory of even in the West, uh, history is mm -hmm. used to some extent that way, right? Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, that's it. That's it. You know, the, I, at the beginning, uh, yesterday we talked about this, that, that I said that history is basically a post-enlightenment thing. And I said that, you know, this idea of progress. But the other thing that was very important is the emergence of the nation states. Right? And uh, so how... How do we understand history without connecting the present time to our glorious past? Like the state of Italy, for example, I'll mm -hmm. give you this example. <clears throat> Italy was unified in 1864, from 61 to 64. Okay. And, uh, and uh, Garibaldi, who was one of these sort of uh, revolutionaries at the time yeah. uh, said that uh, we have created Italy because he unified the entire now time has come to create Italians huh. think about how bizarre this statement is right? because and how do they do that by actually creating this sort of glorious history to to tell people who live in that region we all share something with one another right and oh, wow. you know italy italy of the second half of 19th century had absolutely nothing whatsoever with roman empire <laughs> <laughs> right? but this is created this is that becomes the glorified past of Italy. At the time that Italy was unified, only 2.5% of Italians spoke Italian. Sorry, did you 2. say 2.5%? 2.5%. You know? That is unbelievable. 
Talk about creating things. Italy. <laughs> Talk about creating, creating the Italians, you know. So, like, Sicilians, when, when they sent from Rome, they sent their teachers to Sicily to establish new kind of education, you know, schools. And Sicilians were fighting with them tooth and nail. And then after they defeated Sicilians, and they said, why are you fighting these people? They said, oh, we thought they were the Brits attacking us. Oh, my you know? goodness. That is and so interesting. It, 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 it's so, you know, France, the same thing. I know you you create these kinds of uh, <clears throat> manufactured stories to, I mean, Persian Empire, the same thing. You know, yeah. Egyptians, the same thing. I mean. The, the Egypt of pharaohs and and uh, Egypt, the country of Egypt today, really had nothing in common. You know, this is completely. It just happens that it happens at the same region, same but, ge geographic but, region. You know what you're what you were sharing with me about Italy, and that that's a wonderful example. France had a similar story in which uh, uh, a few percentage of uh, uh, people in France actually spoke French. But if we extrapolate right. that to the Middle East, look at Iraq. You have Kurds right. in the north, Sunnis in the middle, Shiites in the south. Mm -hmm. Many of them speak different languages. They have Assyrians in there. I don't know all the uh, different uh, yeah. people. So they are yeah. same in <clears throat> Iran. Uh, one of the most sort of intense cases of it in a little space is Lebanon. So many different yeah. uh, right. nations, actually, not just tribes. Yeah. So you do need some sort of yeah. commonality that comes from history. Yeah. Oh, that's that commonality. I mean, that's that's why I said that. You know, when I told you at the beginning <laughs> that history is written by historians, you know, <laughs> is made by historians because these are historians that they want to generate a sense of continuity, a sense of belonging, a sense of glorious past, and uh, otherwise, you know. Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, all these things are totally based on arbitrary borders yeah. that were created, you know, in the aftermath of World War One, and divided up between French and British empires and then later independent countries, which really, I mean, had absolutely no meaning whatsoever if you exactly, go back yeah. like, unnatural. like five centuries you know um in the minute we have left of this segment before we go to the perspective i want to <laughs> share an observation with you um mm -hmm. you know you may have a comment or 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 not i don't know uh you are a scholar at princeton university you've been here for decades it's, it's not like you're in the middle east uh, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. From everything that I see on TV, I haven't been there for decades either since, you know, but the way we think of the study of history here mm -hmm. in the West or in the United States, it's got to be different than the Middle East. It's not like, let's say, mm -hmm. um, well, save for Israel or mm -hmm. probably not even in Turkey, Turkey. I don't think mm -hmm. a scholar can get up all of a sudden and talk about, uh, you know, write a critical biography of mm -hmm. uh, let's say Mr. Ordwan or someone mm -hmm. can talk about I mm -hmm. don't think historians are free to exercise the the science of history the way we are here right mm -hmm. it's not like you can walk into a I don't know bookshop in Tehran and pick up 
whatever history book you want or order mm. it on Amazon, mm. right? It's got to be different. Yeah. Thankfully, there is no Amazon in Tehran. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut this part later. <laughs> if Amazon is sponsoring your program. No, no one's. No, no, no. So, um, no, that, 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 that's, that's so true. I mean, the, the, the thing is that um, for the most part, uh, My point was that censorship also applies to history. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. Censorship, first and foremost, applies to history. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, the U.S. academic world and university system possibly by far is the most successful model of, of uh, higher education and scholarship. And... Um, I mean, there are there's so many difficulties here, especially now. I don't want to get into that, but uh, but uh, nevertheless, I don't think any other country comes even close to the kind of free exercise of um, scholarly expression uh, that we enjoy here in the U.S. Uh, not even in Europe. Not even in Europe. And, uh, not even in Europe. Hmm. And uh, and that's because of the way university system is uh, organized in the U.S. Of course, you know, history is perhaps one of the most contested areas of, of uh, uh, academic uh, inquiry. And, uh, because it's, and all this conversation we've been having, it tells you how important history is. Yeah. Because, uh, because it really defines the uh, constitutive elements of a nation and uh, that wait let me say that again it defines the constitutive elements of a nation that's really profound yeah. of course it is because because it is you know yeah. because uh, how else do you understand uh, this world uh, from the standpoint of your national belonging you know because you have Everyone has a sense of national belonging uh, because this is the way the world is organized. Yeah. And, uh, and in each little part of this world, uh, there are huge industries and machines at work to define that sense of belonging. You know? Look at the America we live in now. This is, I mean, this is the struggle of... of Writing a history, a sense of belonging that is so contested today. I, I want to talk about that, yeah. and let's do that in the next segment. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Kamari Tabrizi as we get mm -hmm. into the perspective. How would one live in a country that is suffering through an inflation rate of 25% per month? Your real salary is not the salary that you are agreeing at the beginning of the contract. Your real salary is the average of the, of the salary that you are going to have over the year. But because you, you are not very able to compare between prices because are changing all the time, the power that the store have increased a lot. So actually in high inflation, we see that the markups of the stores increase because they have more power because 
the cost of searching prices increase a lot for consumers. In Season 4, Episode 6 of the History Behind News podcast, I spoke with Dr. Gabrielle Plazzo about Argentina's economic crisis and its new president, who campaigned with a running chainsaw to cut state subsidies. And he also wants to dollarize Argentina's economy. So when you say Argentinians have savings in dollars outside the banking system, so where do they save their money? Under the mattress. <laughs> Seriously? Under the couch. Or maybe wow. you have like a, a, a security box in the bank that, that it's different to have a saving account. I've dropped a link to my conversation with Dr. Plazzo. Now, let's continue our conversation with Dr. Ameri Tabrizi. Dr. Ameri Tabrizi, in the last segment, uh, I, I cut you off because I said you were getting into a very <laughs> fascinating part of our, a sexy part of our conversation <laughs> about the study of history and our university system. Uh, so I'll just follow on that. In America, we're going through a period in which we're correcting and canceling history. Mm -hmm. It's been happening mm -hmm. for the last decade. Um, so are there lessons from the Middle East for us here? Remember in the last segment, I said you're not free yeah. to study history right, right. the way we are yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that uh, uh, we can learn from the Middle East uh, and from Iranian experience in particular, because Iranian experience is important and a bit different from the rest of the Middle East because of the revolution that happened in Iran in 1979, that uh, what we need in the U.S. is a uh, space for public engagement about history. History is not only taught at the universities. If you, I mean, like, if you, for example, today you go to Iran, you mentioned that you go to a bookstore and, and it's incredible what kind of books are available there. I mean, it, it's mind boggling that, that the books that are translated into Persian and you can buy them. And then in the afternoon- Oh, so I was wrong. They do have access to a wide- Oh, absolutely. Okay. They, they, they have, they have incredible, Incredible, and this is one of those paradoxes, you know, that that yeah. uh, that that you see that kind of very vibrant. This is the point I wanted to uh, to draw on. That uh, the lesson we can learn that that it has generated, despite the state repression, we have a very vibrant intellectual community in Iran. And that kind of, you know, universities are controlled by the state and their repressive policies are implemented there. People are dismissed from their jobs, tenured faculty are, are uh, stacked and so on and so forth. But then outside of that, there is a whole world of public intellectual engagement. That's we amazing. do not have that in the U.S. We don't. We need that in the U.S. And uh, this is sort of a, you know, in the 1960s, for example, in France, there was such a condition 
that public intellectuals were so important. Um, and uh, we have some public intellectuals in the U.S., but, but only on the margins. Um, we need a space in which that these issues about history, and I really appreciate what you do, and one of the reasons I, I'm eager to talk to you is exactly that, because this yeah. is a step towards generating that kind of space for public conversation about um, uh, deeper meaning of everyday events, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so this is really something that, that I mean, I, I tell you this little anecdote and we can move on. Uh, uh, one of my old friends who moved back to Iran and uh, uh, got a job as a lecturer at the university. And then I was talking to him and said that, can you sustain your livelihood from your salary from the university? He said, no, salary from the university is nothing. I teach evening classes uh, oh. to like, like an adult school, you know? And uh, I said, like, what? He said, well, I offer three weeks of philosophy of Hegel and, uh, and three huh. weeks on, you know, intensive Nietzsche. And I said, like, what? Who, who comes to these classes? He said that, you know, I have a long waiting list for these classes. Dr. Like, you need several bottles of wine to sit there and teach that or listen to that. Oh, my gosh, that's intense. And, you know, this happens all the time, you know, and, and this is a, such a fascinating thing that it sort of happens under the surface of that repressive rule, under it. A lot of things are happening, and uh, and wow. we need something like that. I don't know how one can generate that kind of space here, but uh, what is lacking here is, you know, uh, even in public discourses here in politics, when people say, "Oh, that's an academic issue," it means that it's irrelevant, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, to add to that, uh, uh, Dr. Amir Tabrizi, many times when you talk about history, or you know, you know, I talk. Uh, people mention that I have a history program, uh, both history behind news and now unraveling the Middle East. People say, people say things about history that are not really what I do, or what many people mm -hmm. that I engage with do. Mm -hmm. I think to many Western Europeans, and mostly, most certainly Americans. History is kind of like History Channel. What kind of right. muskets were used in the Revolutionary War? You know, right. who That's were the generals? These are like fun facts. They're not right. analysis of like was America's yeah. revolution supported by everyone? How did these are more profound than I don't think right. Right. patience or perhaps interest? Yeah, there are chronicles. You know, there are chronicles. Yeah, you know, like. Uh, General X was, you know, leading this uh, counter-offensive in, in that front. Exactly, you know? okay. exactly. Um, I want to close our conversation with this question. Yeah. Um, yesterday, we talked about Dr. Sherietti. And mm. even before we got to him, you made this statement. Uh, uh, and I think this is almost a quote from what you said. Uh, you said, mm. Western democracies have either mm. failed or will fail. So uh, the point that I want to mention about him here is that he believed that major Western democracy is essentially demagogy. With Mr. Trump's brand of uh, 
populism that is so rampant in our politics, and you also see it in Brazil, in Hungary, other places. Do you right. think um, Dr. Charietti's view about Western democracy was correct? Uh, no, I don't think his view uh, was correct because I, I don't think that his uh, main concern was to think about uh, democracy as a principle of political authority. That's That was oh. not his preoccupation. His preoccupation was liberation from colonial yoke, you know, and... Um, I see. And... Uh, so he really didn't spend much time to think about these issues. Uh, he was critical. He, for him and many others, you could not and should not separate Western democracies from their colonial impulse. Colonial oh. impulse is a part and parcel of Western democracies. And without colonialism, they could not sustain their democratic systems inside their own countries. And uh, so uh, this is like, you know, we have this conversation today about, uh, you know, the Middle East and Palestine and Israel, for example. And people say that, you know, Israel is the only democratic country in the region. And, and a lot of people on the Palestinian side will say that, you know, you can understand Israel as a democracy with the way they treat Palestinians. You know, yeah, they're, yeah. They're part of the same system. You know, they're mm -hmm. not separate. So, uh, like, American organized coup in Iran in 1953, American organized coup in Chile, in Na Guatemala, in Indonesia, in war in Vietnam. They're not a separate part from American democracy. They are part of the same system. One allows the other to operate. Indirectly, perhaps. Indirectly, indirectly. And yeah. sometimes directly. And sometimes directly, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, the direct part is, you know, the economic benefit that they uh, rip from, from colonial uh, expansion. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, and of course, you know, if if uh, if the U.S. and this is what we are going through right now, because whenever there are economic crises, uh, democracies are challenged, right? Because yeah. you can have this populist uh, uh, demagogue, you know, and uh, and it happens in in Argentina, in in Brazil, in the U.S. Yeah, so yeah. so democracies need economic stability. Without economic stability, democracies become dysfunctional. And that economic stability has a lot to do with the role in, uh, in the world, that colonial expansion, imperialism. Of course, these days, you know, you say imperialism, people uh, close their ears. They say, oh, don't say this. These are old concepts. But I don't think these are old concepts. Yeah. Uh, they're very, very relevant because they contribute to economic stability uh, that is so foundational in maintaining a, a democratic system. And uh, why fascism emerged, you know?
in Germany. It was an uh, economic disaster was happening in Germany. Disaster, right. Yeah. So so when 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 people like Shariati and others argue that you cannot separate colonial intentions from democratic systems in, in, in the motherlands, I think there is an important point there. And and uh, and and we've seen it uh, and we will see it in the future. And and a part of this conversation, uh, you know, I, you need to obviously talk to someone who knows American society much better than I do. But but this is partly the reason that that, that the American democratic system is so shaky now. That yeah. it, there's a different kind of world order is emerging, you know, and that world order has a lot to do with the survival of American democracy. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Dr. Ramari Tabrizi, thank you for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could unravel the Middle East, please share it with us. Thank you so okay. much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you think we can create intellectual communities in America outside the university environment? If so, how do you propose we go about doing this? Or is it the case that you don't think such communities are needed at all? I'd love to hear from you about this, so please share your thoughts with me via the link I've provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Also, please join me and my guests next week as we unravel the Middle East. If you enjoyed the music in our podcast, check out the links and attributions to the talented artists who created these wonderful pieces. As for our guests, the opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At Unraveling the Middle East podcast, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history of the Middle East. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here. Rather, our guests provide in-depth analysis of and narratives from the past. And our mission is not to provide a complete account of this region with its long and complex history. Rather, it's to highlight some issues and incidents from its past that may poke and prod your discerning minds to unravel the histories, myths and mysteries of the Middle East. And if you disagree with our take on the history of the Middle East, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about complex issues that elude easy soundbite answers. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments on our social media pages or sending me an email to info at historybehindnews.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Unraveling the Middle East.